Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph and GP of Flex Capital. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Ajit Pai. Ajit is the former chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, where he served from 2017 to 2021. And he's currently a partner at Searchlight Capitals. Ajit, welcome to World of DAS. All right. It's so great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm really excited. Okay. Now there's been a lot of talk about regulating AI recently. I know that's not exactly in the FCC world. And you have Sam Altman, OpenAI, testifying before Congress and stuff like that. How do you think about the framework of how we should think about regulating AI? In some sense, it's new because obviously recent developments in artificial intelligence are new. But in one sense, it's a quite old debate. Whenever you have a new technology, there is consistently some sort of fever that spreads in Washington. What should we do about it? How should we regulate it? And what is interesting in this particular case is that there seems to be a consensus on both sides of the aisle, politically speaking, that, quote unquote, something should be done, but nobody actually agrees on what that something should be. And so I tend to take a more macro view of this, step back and say, what is the problem that we are trying to solve with regulation? And typically, when you adopt preemptive regulations like this, there are two conditions that should apply, one or the other or both. Number one, there's a fundamentally broken marketplace in terms of competition. One company might have a monopoly or there's a monopoly that prevents innovation. And or number two, there's some sort of fundamental consumer protection problem that the market itself is not designed or not able to solve. And so you need to have some rules of the road in order for consumers to be protected. But in this case, certainly the first condition doesn't apply. I mean, if anything, you probably saw Google's Palm 2 announcement. Every single day, it seems like there's some new iteration of LLMs that is just really pushing the envelope in terms of competitive choice. In terms of consumer protection, I think it sounds theoretically easy to say we should regulate to protect consumers, but I'm not exactly sure what that regulation would look like and who would do it and whether we're equipped to do it and those sorts of things. I think there's two things that people are worried about in AI. One is that you'll get scammed more. And obviously that's already illegal to scam someone, whether you use AI or not or something. So it's not clear what a regulation will do per se. The other is AI will take over and start doing things to humans that people don't understand. And that could have a detrimental effect to all or some humans or something like that. And it's not clear how you regulate the second one either. I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. Assuming for the sake of argument, we wanted to regulate it. I don't even know how you would regulate something like that. If you look at something like Hugging Face, for example, and you've got just an open source platform for models, and you're going to have regulators constantly diving down the rabbit hole to see who is using what models and how do you track those people down? You, do you ask them to do some pre, pre-work pre security assessment? How do you evaluate all that stuff? It becomes easy in the abstract to say we should have regulation, but in that particular case, I just don't know how it would be workable and who would do Nuclear everything is regulated heavily. Nuclear power is regulated. Obviously, making a nuclear bomb is regulated. The uranium is regulated. Plutonium is regulated. So you have this whole thing on it, but it's not clear how you would translate that framework to software. I don't know if you've thought about it. Yeah, the nuclear example is a very good one because you tend to have centralized facilities very easily monitored in the physical world. You have people in Washington who have studied this, who are expert in it. Here, by contrast, as I understand it anyway, I'm certainly no AI expert, but it just seems to me that increasingly a lot of these models are being innovated in a way that's highly decentralized and just proliferating like crazy. 
it's just very difficult to track. And moreover, I don't get the sense that there's a particular agency or group of people in Washington that is equipped to take on the task. Part of my skepticism is that just from a practical perspective, I don't know how Washington would fashion a regulatory framework that can be administered in a way that provides certainty and actually has a concrete goal in mind that it's able to achieve. What do you make of all these tech execs? Seems like the vast majority of them asking for regulation. They're asking to be regulated. Is it a PR thing or is it a legit concern thing or is it a, I want to cement my monopoly thing or how do you think about it? Here too, I tend to be a little more skeptical whenever I hear companies, especially dominant companies coming to Washington saying, please regulate my business because all too often it's a way of essentially promoting, I wouldn't say regulatory capture so much as cementing the dominant position that the firm or the group of firms might already have. And essentially, we saw this on the telecom side too, where AT&T almost 100 years ago came to the government and said, we want you to heavily regulate the company in exchange for essentially a guaranteed monopoly over telephone stuff. And That was called the Kingsbury Commitment in 1913 and ended up pushing out telephone innovation for decades. And so that's one of the things I'm generally skeptical about. And I think politicians, of course, see it as a win. Hey, here's a really dominant Sam Altman comes before the Senate Judiciary Committee and says, I want you to have some sort of licensing arrangement that would prevent anyone from freely innovating on AI. And politicians can pocket that as a win. But ultimately, the question is, is the marketplace, is the consumer going to be well served by that cozy relationship? I tend to think the answer is no. Speaking of these big tech, there's a belief among some that a lot of these big tech companies are anti-competitive and they might box out smaller startups, slow innovation. How do you think about that? I don't think tech companies are inherently anti-competitive. All of them, of course, started reasonably short period of time ago as startups themselves. Certainly, they've acquired a heft in the marketplace that is pretty substantial, trillion-dollar market caps and obviously growing through acquisition pretty aggressively. But that said, I think now is demonstrating that innovation and entrepreneurship, you can really thrive even within a framework of a few very clustered big companies like the Fangs or whatever. I think that's part of the reason why, to be frank, entrepreneurs innovate is because they know that if they create a startup that's going to have value, they get their Series A and they've got visibility into really growing the business quickly. The exit that they're looking for is, in many cases, too strategic, in particular, one of those big companies. And so I think it can actually encourage entrepreneurs in some sense to innovate when they know that one of the potential exits is to one of the big strategic companies. That said, obviously, antitrust enforcers and others have to always be on their guard. Europe has taken a skeptical eye of Google in terms of its dominance in mobile search, for example. And so if there is a market share that is high and if there is conduct that could be construed as anti-competitive, then certainly I think antitrust regulators need to be on the watch for that. But I don't think tech companies are any more or less anti-competitive than any other firm in any other sector. It's just a question of market structure and the regulatory framework that addresses that particular sector. Yeah, I think partially you have these companies, which some of the big complaints is that they have an app and they sell virtual good, it could be a music or whatever on that app or something. If they want to actually sell it on the app, they have to pay Apple or Google 30%. And so they make the experience worse. That would make their model not work because in many cases, they have to give a lot of royalties to somebody else. So then they have to make the consumer experience really bad where the consumer has to go on the web to go do something or whatever, then it appears on the app. I think some of the arguments is it's not great for the consumer. Oh, and that's certainly one of the counterexamples that I would highlight myself as being an example of potentially any competitive conduct. The App Store is run by Apple. I mean, it is 
really a gatekeeper into all of the Apple devices. And so read a number of the complaints from companies that have said, look, you know, number one, it's very difficult to get approved in some cases, or even if we do get approved, we have to fork over a super competitive price or amount of money to Apple just for the privilege of getting on the App Store. So that's a good example of where I think antitrust regulators are correct in taking a look at what's going on here. Is this stifling innovation? This is ultimately harming consumers. That could be an example of an area where the companies are behaving in an anti-competitive way. What do you think about these companies being gatekeepers in general? So whether they have certain types of speech things, things you can say or things you can't say, and we're talking about it's not just the social media and the YouTubes, but it could be payment systems like a PayPal, et cetera. And again, they're a company, maybe they should be able to make certain decisions, but how do you think they should come out on those things? Now, this is one of the things that really does worry me because increasingly some of these companies have control of platforms that are essentially digital public squares in some sense, whether it's YouTube or Twitter or even Facebook to an extent. And to the extent that the companies are using their control of those platforms in ways that could implicitly or in some cases even explicitly stifle speech, I do get worried quite a bit. I talked about this when I was chairman of the FCC in the context of the net neutrality debate, that it's ironic to me that some of the big tech companies that were really pushing for these net neutrality regulations on network operators were actually behaving themselves in ways, allegedly, that could be construed as net neutrality violations. Yeah, it is interesting where I didn't see much, maybe because there's so much pressure on Comcast and AT&T to decide who gets access to their pipes. I didn't see much of that go on. But obviously, all the tech companies have very clear rules about what you can do and what you can't do. In some ways, I'm glad for that. I don't want spam and I don't want some of the other things that go through that. But it isn't neutral. Absolutely not. We saw this in Twitter quite saliently, I thought, pre-Elon's acquisition at least, that some people weren't sure exactly why they were being suspended or why their posts were being deprioritized. There are so many examples of Legion, of course, following all the Twitter file stuff. If you posted something saying three years ago or two years ago, even, I think the coronavirus came from a lab in Wuhan, China. Whereas now, all of a sudden, the consensus come around like, oh, maybe that could have been a possibility. We shouldn't have ruled it out. And so the company operating in a way that was non-transparent, in a way that stifled speech, I think, is quite problematic. If it's just Twitter, who cares? They're just one of many different places that people can engage But if it's 10 companies and they all do that same policy around, as you mentioned, maybe that COVID example, et cetera, then you really can't have that message anywhere and the message really can't get out. Absolutely. And I think there was an article in Time magazine after the 2020 election where they went through and said, yeah, the tech companies essentially agreed. We've got to coordinate efforts or I can't remember what the phrasing was, but essentially say we need to take action to make sure that a certain election result we don't like doesn't obtain. And so the New York Post example was one of them when they tried to publish on their Twitter account the Hunter Biden laptop story and promptly got it down. And to me, at least, whatever you think of the election and whatever you think of that particular story, the notion that a newspaper founded by Alexander Hamilton was literally not able to get its message out on Twitter, get its reporting out, was just really troublesome to me, at least, as a citizen. And so that's one of the things that does bother me quite a bit. There's no transparency. It's all a black box. And we're all at the mercy when all of them together are essentially controlling a lot of our ability to speak online. When you were the chairman of the FCC, it's one of the biggest deals that everyone was talking about was net neutrality, as you mentioned. And it seems to me now it's a nothing burger. For at least 10 years, it was the thing that every tech company wanted to talk about. Why was it such a big thing? 
It is fascinating, isn't it? In retrospect, it was such a white hot issue, especially when I was leading the agency, even before I got there. I think part of the reason is that increasingly so much of our lives migrated to digital platforms. Then the question becomes, well, if we're doing so much, if we're speaking, if we're buying, if we're studying and doing all these other things online, what if the online provider is acting as a gatekeeper and preventing me from doing what I want to do? And that's always been a live issue ever since the dawn of the commercial internet. But part of the reason why it really took flight when I became chairman was that, number one, I was proposing to reverse the Obama era net neutrality regulations. And then also, number two, there were certain key cultural actors, I guess you might say, who decided to embrace this as a cause celeb. You know, John Oliver, for example, making me and Mug back here infamous in May of 2017, <laughs> vaulted this into the popular consciousness, at least among young people, actors, celebrities, politicians, and others really said, look, this is the defining issue of our time. In some ways, that just doesn't happen randomly. There's a coordinated effort to get those people to be interested in this issue. There's a whole PR campaign that somebody has to fund. It's not an issue normally people would get so red hot about. And I can understand it would get hot about it if AT&T did take away your ability to go to the ESPN website or something like that, then yeah, you would be really, really upset about it. But to the best of my knowledge, that never happened. There was never a catalyst to make it happen. Exactly. That was one of the strangest things to me, even when I was in the minority during the Obama administration, when these regulations were first adopted, I kept asking, what is the problem that we're trying to solve here? Yeah. What's the harm that's happening? Yeah. And going back to our earlier conversation about AI, typically you would adopt a regulation like this, utility style regulations, when the marketplace is so fundamentally broken that there's no other alternative. Here in 2015, when these regulations were adopted, we weren't living in some digital hellscape where you know, internet service providers were blocking you from accessing websites or you'd have to pay $15 just to do a Google search or whatever. Things seem to be progressing pretty well, at least in my experience of most reasonable people. And so I think part of the reason was that a lot of big tech companies, to be frank, were engaging in regulatory arbitrage. When Netflix and Google and others say, hey, look, these big bad ISPs are going to prevent your ability to stream or to do a search. And we need to make sure that there's a groundswell of opposition to this. Somehow that started filtering into other parts of society. And certainly Hollywood picked up the mantle, as did some folks in Washington. Maybe did prevent something from happening because maybe AT&T and Comcast would have been more aggressive. It's hard to know what the counterfactual is, but it also prevented, at least for many years, certainly in the Obama administration, really any regulation around tech because it was almost like there's nothing to see here, little Star Wars move. And nobody likes the cable companies. It is a good boogeyman to always focus on. And that's one of the things that was consistently lost in the neutrality debate, at least when I was chairman, was, look, all I was saying is there should be regulatory parity, whether you are an internet content company or you're a network operator, anywhere you are in the stack, we should have a similar regulatory framework. Because from a consumer perspective, they could care less whether it's Comcast or Google preventing them from accessing a website. What they care about is that they're prevented from accessing the website. And so I consistently try to advocate for, in terms of net neutrality or privacy or whatever, just a consistent regulatory framework. But the way it played out was essentially, as I said, regulatory arbitrage, that some of the big tech companies were trying to shift the costs of the internet traffic they're generating onto network operators as opposed to assuming some of those themselves. Now, these network operators traditionally, they're not liable. If I call you up and I say something bad, if I say something slanderous, AT&T is not liable. I'm calling you on my AT&T phone. And Section 230, when it got enacted in the 90s, gave the internet companies something 
similar. But of course, the trade is that I can call you up and say something slanderous. Do you think Section 230 should stay as it is, or do you think it should be evolved over time? Certainly, a lot of people have taken very strident views on this. The president's consistent view, for example, is that Section 230 should be repealed. Some Senate and House Republicans agree with him on that. Others want more tailored reform, and they're proposing legislation to do that. For my own part, what I would like to see is an interpretation of Section 230 by the courts that would more closely hew to what I think the originators of Section 230 back in 1996 had in mind. In particular, with respect to content moderation decisions when a social media platform decides to take down content, right now, the way Section 230 has been interpreted, they get a completely free pass because the tech companies argue that Section 230 is essentially blanket immunity for those kinds of decisions. But if you read the statute and if you apply some of the legal canons of construction, as they're called, Section 230C2 in particular says that a tech company is immune from liability if it takes down content in good faith, number one, that they consider to be lewd, lascivious, harmful. There's a whole string of adjectives. And then it says, or otherwise objectionable. And the tech companies have said that that otherwise objectionable phrase essentially opens the door to blanket immunity. But applying the traditional tools that lawyers use to interpret statutes, I think it's pretty clear that otherwise objectionable was meant to be something similar to lewd, lascivious, obscene, really extreme decisions like that. I don't think that, say, politically-based content moderation decisions enjoy Section 230 liability. I've already seen Justice Thomas take that position. Justice Kagan was asking something similar in the Google case, the Supreme Court case that was recently decided, where she said every other company in every other sector has to internalize the cost of its conduct in terms of these types of decisions. Why should the tech companies have to do that? And so I think ultimately the courts are going to have to decide whether Section 230 should be brought back to its original vision as opposed to being just blanket immunity. But if that doesn't happen, then certainly I would support some sort of legislation to make sure that tech companies don't get special immunity that no other industry gets. GDPR just had their five-year anniversary. What do you think the legacy is so far? I think the legacy is a very rich one for the dangers of regulatory overreach. I remember when it was being debated that GDPR seemed to be quite strict. And I think that has played out over time that some of the costs of the regulation have been substantial, but they also haven't really served consumers all that well. For any consumers trying to access a website in the European Union, it's just a pain now to jump through all of these windows that pop up. I don't even get it. It's not just European Union. It's literally every website has this annoying cookie banner on it that you have to click off. First of all, what does that banner even do? Is it purely just a CYA thing? It's just a terrible experience. So they've now probably created hundreds of millions of hours of people being upset. And I don't even know what the benefit is. Everyone says yes, I presume. If you say no, I don't even know what goes on. Exactly. And you would know better than me having founded and run a company that's in the tech space. But I would imagine that the compliance costs, you just hire the lawyers to draft this stuff and monitor it to handle any inquiries that come. Just purely from the consumer perspective, what does consumers gain by this pop-up? They only lose. There's no gaining that happens. I could see a regulatory thing saying, okay, there's a scenario where companies lose a little bit, but consumers gain and we're going to go on the side of consumers. That to me makes perfect sense. But when everybody loses, I don't get what we're doing. But I was hoping you would dissuade me of this situation. I think in this case, you're preaching to the choir. I just don't really see much upside to the consumer from any of this. And moreover, some of the enforcement actions that have been taken don't really seem designed to address a particular consumer harm. The recent one involving Microsoft, I think it was something like $425 million 
And it was essentially the EU telling the Irish Data Protection Authority, you shall find them this amount. But as far as I could tell, there wasn't any concrete harm to the targeted advertising that was in question. Yeah, or by accident, you don't house all your data in the EU and you have a backup of it in Oregon or something. So I think the legacy ultimately has been the latest attempt by the European Union to essentially penalize non-European firms that they perceive as dominant. Certainly, it's a nice revenue driver. So in some ways, you could say, well, okay, the citizens of the EU have benefited from that because they've gotten extra revenues that they wouldn't have had otherwise. It has an echo of in the old days, I don't know if they still do it, but France used to have a requirement that on the broadcast airwaves, you had to have a certain percentage of French content. You couldn't have too much English or German or whatever protectionist, almost mercantilist. I feel like GDR is the same, that whatever the EU decides to do, they're just going to do it. And disproportionately, it's going to fall on American companies to pay the price. And also the trade, when I originally was getting proposed, I thought, okay, maybe it will add some competition. But the trade, at least for the consumer internet, was I think Google got higher market share, Facebook got higher market share, not lower market share. So it didn't really add the competition piece of it either. And this is one of the points I made at the time and in other contexts too, in the telecoms context as well, that people have the misperception that the heavier handed regulation is, the more consumers must be protected and the more competitive a marketplace will be. But because the compliance cost can be so severe, it's actually the larger scale firms that have the ability to comply and the smaller ones end up getting squashed. And so if you were a VC investing in a startup that relied on the collection and analysis of data, you'd be pretty hesitant in investing if they were subject to GDPR. It's like, how on earth is this company going to be able to scale when you know, it's a five-person or 10-person shop and Google has a massive compliance team, which we can't replicate. There was a component of GDPR that I did see it had an appeal to me, which is that you could take your data and move it to other places. So if your data is at a bank and you want to move it to another bank, they can't lock your data and they have to allow you to move it. To me, this seems like a very competition-friendly type of thing. What pieces of GDPR do you like? That portability is something I do like. And you're just the same in the United States. Most consumers are probably familiar with if you switch phone providers, you can take your cell phone number with you. Similar thing that's relatively consumer friendly. And so there are pieces of it, I think, that are valuable. But the bigger picture ones, big enforcement actions, at least, seem more political slash parochial than they are grounded in consumer harm. How do you think of things like crypto regulation? Crypto regulation is very much in the news today. Is there a different framework than we need, or can we use the same frameworks that we already have? I think right now, everybody seems to be groping around in the dark to figure out what the regulatory framework is going to be. And the SEC of late, as you know, has issued a flurry of enforcement actions against Binance and Coinbase this week alone. And I think a lot of people are just trying to figure out, is there going to be a regulatory framework? And if so, how should we forge that framework? And This is part of the concern I've had about the SEC's actions, just stepping away from crypto generally, is that when you proceed by regulating through enforcement action, as opposed to, say, publishing rules that everyone can innovate and work around, you end up creating a lot more uncertainty at the end of the day. This is a great example. Coinbase, my understanding is they've had over 40 meetings with SEC staff. They asked for a meeting with the SEC chairman, which was declined. And they said, look, just tell us what you want the rules of the road to be. Yeah, we'll follow them. If you're an engineer, to me, rules are just code. I'll just follow all the rules. I'll put it all in there. Just tell me what the rules are. It's okay if you don't know today. Sometimes you don't know everything right away, but tell me everything you know, and I'll follow them. And then as you get new rules, just let me know what those are. And if I'm a good software developer within a few months, they're all completely in my system. 
putting this to the side for the moment, the Binance and FTX cases, if you just so focus on Coinbase, pretty much all they're trying to do is say, look, we want to operate this exchange. Just tell us how you want us to work around some of the rules that you have in mind. And they just couldn't get a clear answer from that. Congress hasn't provided a clear answer to that either. And so what you're left with is essentially a political appointee at an independent agency just saying, you know what? I'm going to crush your business model today. <laughs> and that's just the way it's going to be. And you're going to have to litigate it in court, perhaps over years, to figure out whether or not that model is going to succeed in the United States. And to me, at least, that's not the way to regulate a sector. Crypto itself, I think, is interesting. The technology underlying it, of course, blockchain is quite fascinating. And I don't know where it's going to go, but that's the point with incipient technologies is that you tend to let these technologies develop, bring entrepreneurs and capital here to the United States because we have a really open culture of innovation here and see where things go. Almost all the bad stuff that's happened in crypto, and there's been so many bad things that have happened in crypto, but it's not like they did something bad with the current rules. You can't steal people's money in any scenario, in any technology. It's not like, oh, we have a new technology. We're allowed to steal your money now or can't scam people in any scenario. So you have all these different things that you can't pump and dump in any scenario. You should never do that. That's really manipulating people, essentially scamming people. You don't need crypto regulations to enforce those things. Absolutely. Two threads that really made me laugh when the FTX situation really exploded. Number one was this argument that, oh my gosh, FTX's implosion cast doubt on all crypto. It's like Madoff, now we can't be good with the US dollar because Madoff scammed all these people. Exactly. So shifting funds from one place to another without investor's consent, bull, that's garden variety. You see that in every other type of financial fraud case, allegedly again. But the second thing that made me laugh is that FTX in particular was looking for the same type of regulatory arbitrage from Washington. They were the coziest ones in Washington. They were the ones really urging these regulations. And so to me, at least, Coinbase in this, again, I haven't read every single fact of every filing that's out there, but it just seems like they were proceeding in good faith saying, look, just we want to work with you. Just help us find a way forward. And so that's part of the concern I have. If we don't want crypto to exist in the United States, I guess that's the way it's going to be. The regulators are just going to play whack-a-mole and entrepreneurs have to figure out on that day whether or not they have a business or not. But to me, at least, that's not the way the United States historically has operated. TikTok is the first major social media platform, at least that I know of, that has become extremely popular in the U.S. that wasn't built in the U.S. These innovations that come out of regimes that might be a little bit more restrictive or in some cases a lot more restrictive. How do you think we should be thinking about that in our framework? It does concern me, TikTok in particular, and other applications and services that come from China, because obviously the influence of the Chinese Communist Party is problematic. And there have been any number of issues with TikTok that have been aired in the United States in terms of where they store data, spying on journalists, are they using one version of TikTok in China and another in the United States, security concerns to the extent they're subject to China's national intelligence law and have to share information about consumers, et cetera. That platform does give me some concern. But in terms of the basic question, why is it one of the first social media platforms to go viral? It's really interesting. I'm not sure why that is. One of the great thought experiments to me is if Vine had been allowed to proliferate, if you remember Vine. Yeah, of course. I thought it was interesting. I tried using it a couple of times. And I think that would have been an interesting test case if that had thrived. Would TikTok have become as as salient as it has. And I just don't know the answer to that. But there's no question that among young people in particular, TikTok is essentially a third appendage after their two arms at this point. It's extremely appealing to them. In the state of Montana, supposedly, they're going to be trying to ban TikTok. And is it even legal to do some of these things? How do you think about it from a regulatory perspective? 
On one hand, banning it outright could raise some First Amendment concerns. It's essentially the government taking a content-based restriction on speech, if you consider TikTok to be a platform for online speech. On the other hand, some of the other moves that have been taken, for example, federal agencies and state governments banning TikTok from government-issued phones for security reasons. That seems very reasonable because they ban lots of stuff from your phone. They ban location-based apps and other types of things from your phone. So that seems very reasonable. Yeah, I wouldn't want military members, especially those deployed abroad, using TikTok on phones for obvious reasons. And so I think there is a line to be drawn here, and it's going to be interesting to see how courts and legislators end up drawing that line. I personally think banning TikTok just from anybody just seems a little weird. There's so many other bad stuff we don't ban. Even if you say TikTok's bad, I don't use TikTok. I also don't use OnlyFans. There's so many things out there that I don't use. Should we just ban them all? I don't know. That does seem a little weird. Yeah, it's one thing to say we're going to ban it for security reasons, which I'm more than sympathetic to if the case has been made. But as you said, I tend to be skeptical about social media's value for people overall, regardless of platform. And so one would say that if you're going to throw out the baby, then you have to throw out all the bathwater as well, which is a much more substantial decision to have to make. So how do you think about this proliferation of satellites that's happening right now? I've been fascinated with all the different, whether it's plan and all these other things. Obviously, we have the communication satellites that are happening that SpaceX is doing and many others. It's easier to get into space now. It's cheaper to make satellites. Where do you see that all going? It's going to go literally into orbit. <laughs> I mean, I'm really excited about where this is going. And this is one of the things that I'm proudest of in terms of our work at the FCC from 2017 to 2021 when I led the agency, because when I started, we had not really issued that many, if any, approvals for some of the low Earth orbit constellations. We hadn't made a lot of spectrum available for satellite operators to use with certainty. And so one of the things we did in 2017, 2018 was to authorize Starlink and Kuiper and some other satellite companies to start launching en masse these satellites. And I think I really give the American space satellite sector a lot of credit because they decided instead of the old model of satellites, send up some massive satellite, one or two or three, or geostationary, let's send up a hundred or a thousand and put them lower in orbit so that we can have a quicker response time between the Earth and those satellites. And we're seeing the results now. And what we were doing before is we would have a satellite might cost a hundred million dollars and we would make sure it then has to be up there for 20 years, 25 years. Now we've got a satellite costing a million dollars and it could be up there for three years. But the benefit of that is that every time you put a new one up there, the technology gets better. It's just like your iPhone keeps getting better and better. All that stuff is now in the satellite. It's amazing, isn't it? And I don't know if you've ever seen some of these small sats. You can literally hold them in your hand. Yeah, they're like a shoebox. It's incredible. And all of this is happening on our shores. So from a national perspective, this is a real success story to be proud of. And it's not just internet access at home, which is, of course, important, but the other things, IoT applications that could be used in everything from agriculture to shipping, we're just scratching the surface here. And it's a real success story. And that pairs with the success story in terms of launch. And SpaceX, of course, is the leader in this video, there's Blue Origin and others. And it wasn't that long ago that we had to go hat in hand to Russia and ask for launch capacity on some of their rockets. Now we've brought that to the United States through things like Falcon 9 and others. The launch is going to really start, I hate to use another pun, taking off. It's just incredible to think about what we're going to be able to do. This goes back in terms of the point of regulation. That's part of the reason why it was important for me, and I'm glad my successors continue this at the FCC, to establish orbital debris regulations, to make sure that there's certainty around spectrum, so that all of these companies can plan 
in terms of how quickly do we need to deorbit these satellites? What are our responsibilities to create a safe space environment? Now that those rules are in place, I think the pathway is set for entrepreneurs or big companies or small companies alike to really test the waters here. You were a big advocate for expanding the publicly available broadcast spectrum. Why is that important? Oh my gosh, it's important because virtually everything we do nowadays is going mobile. Everyone seems to be wearing one of these surgically implanted on our arms. And as bandwidth demands increase because applications and services we use are ever more sophisticated, that requires more of the airwaves. And so when I came into the office, we hadn't really held, at the FCC at least, substantial amount of spectrum options, which is essentially how we get more spectrum into the commercial marketplace. And I said, this is going to be one of our major priorities. And 5G was a part of that, but it wasn't the only part. Wi-Fi also had become increasingly congested. Most people used the time 2.4 gigahertz spectrum for Wi-Fi is increasingly congested. If you went to a stadium or something, for example, forget it. You're never going to be able to do anything over a Wi-Fi channel. So we held a groundbreaking number of spectrum auctions, which generated over $100 billion for the United States Treasury. In those four years, we freed up more spectrum for consumers than had been freed up in the history of the FCC prior to that for mobile use. And in terms of Wi-Fi as well, we had a 5x increase in the amount of Wi-Fi that we opened up for anybody to use for free. I wanted to make sure that we didn't have spectrum availability as a constraint on wireless innovation. We're still just scratching the surface there too, in terms of Wi-Fi 6E and 5G and all these other things. Consumers are going to see in the time to come that they're able to do virtually anything on a mobile platform from gaming to telehealth. And that was unthinkable in 2017 when I came into office. How many people work at the FCC? So when I left, it was something like 1440. I'm not sure if that has gone down or up in the time since. 1,440? Yeah. And most of them are in the DC area, but we also have a number of field offices from New York to Honolulu, and they are typically enforcement action. Oh, to enforce stuff. Okay. There's a broadcast tower or something like that that is out of compliance. Uh, they fly spec, things like that. Okay. Interesting. And is there a club of the XFCC chairman? Is it like you and Julius Jedikowski yeah. and Michael Powell and Reed Hunt? Do you guys go to a smoke-filled room somewhere and discuss things? Well, first rule of Fight Club or FCC card, <laughs> I can't share those details, but no, there's no formal club. But one of the things I tried to do is I tried to maintain it after leaving office was just to get in touch with all of my predecessors. And so Newt Minow, President Kennedy's FCC chairman, who was there from 1961 to 63, recently passed away, but I established a friendship with him early on. And Oh, wow. Okay. It was just amazing. He was the one who gave the famous Bass Wasteland speech about TV broadcasting and back in the early 60s and made waves. And he was just a really interesting person and a great source of counsel. And similarly, Chairman Dick Wiley in the Ford administration, keep in touch with him. He just saw him the other day. He came into my driveway when he saw me mowing my lawn. And his <laughs> friend, Bill Kennard, and I have a standing lunch where we get together and just talk shop. And I'll consult him every now and then. It's interesting. And Mignon Clyburn, who preceded me as well, she and I have worked together on a couple of things. And it's great because not to say that this is at the level of the presidency, of course, but I feel like it's one of those jobs where you can really only understand the puts and takes if you've occupied the office. And and then once you've left, you get a better understanding of what it was your predecessors were trying to do, regardless of party. It's an interesting perspective to get from them. I find these things are a little bit interesting. It's a little weird. You have these regulatory bodies that usually have five members on it three of the president's power and party, two of the outside, and the other four members or important members are all there. You used to be a member of the FCC, and then you became the chairman. But then the chairman has this very different role. It's not just the chief justice. 
where they have some convening things, they do a few other things. You're really a chief executive of that organization. Absolutely. And one of the reasons I'm smiling is I remember at the tail end of Chairman Janikowski's time when I was a commissioner, he came into my office and I can't remember what it was, but there are two issues that he was asking for my help on. And I said, Julius, I've asked for all these other things and you just haven't really gotten around to it. And I don't understand. I mean, you're the chairman of the agency. You have 1,400 or 1,500 people at the time working for you. Your staff is 15 people. I've only got three. Being the chairman of the FCC has got to be so easy. I don't understand. I just cringe now when I think of that conversation. And he smiled and he looked at me and he said, I'll never forget. He said, someday, Ajit, you're going to have this position and you're going to understand how wrong you are. And I was like, whatever. (laughs) Then I became chairman. I tell Julius this almost every time I see him. You are absolutely right. (laughs) Even commissioners don't appreciate how hard the job is because it's setting the agenda. It's a very different job. It's completely different. And setting the agenda alone is really time consuming because all of the bureaus and offices at the FCC are coming to you. We have this proposal, that proposal. Do you think we should do this? Yes or no? And when and how? And can you edit every single line of these 100 page orders and blah, blah, blah. But even the external role takes a lot of time. I put a priority on international cooperation. And so host of bilateral and multilateral meetings, I help part of the United States delegation to the ITU, which is the UN arm, United Nations arm that deals with Spectrum. Even some of the management stuff, like setting the budget and testifying about it, all that stuff took a lot of time. And then for me, one of the things that was discretionary, admittedly, but I really put a priority on was working with the FCC's career staff. I personally thanked every single person who worked on any order at a public meeting. I went to a bunch of retirement parties, any affinity groups that were meeting from veterans to African-Americans. I wanted to make sure I was there. When we had natural disasters after Hurricane Maria, I personally went to Puerto Rico with some members of our team who were volunteering. And part of the reason I did that was I'm a former career staffer myself, and so I knew how hard these folks worked. What they wanted was recognition. But part of it was also, when you're the chairman, it's very easy to say, this is my agenda, go execute it. But these 1,500 people or 1,400 who executed, they want you to know that you have a vested interest in their success. And so I wanted to demonstrate with my time and my effort that I really cared about them, as cheesy as that might sound. And to this day, I still see people on the street or at the grocery store who work at the FCC. Hey, we really thank you for putting in the time. Even though we might have disagreed with you, we're not at the same party. It was a great working experience. And we treasure that time. Those are the conversations that just make my day. Anyways, to go back to your question... It's an all-encompassing job. I gave it 24-7 for the full four years. And at the end of my time, I was pretty tired, but tired in a good way. And I think my predecessors would probably say the same. Now, you joined Searchlight Capital in 2021, which is somewhat of an auspicious time to get into private equity. How has the landscape changed over that time? Oh, my God. I feel like in just two years, we've seen a full range of the macro cycle where the beginning, at least, money seemed to be free. The competition was pretty intense. Valuations were up, up, up. And now, obviously, the cost of capital has gone up. A lot of deals are- How does that change everything? Explain why the cost of capital- Obviously, you're buying these things with debt, so the cost of capital is very important. But why is that such a big component of things? I think it's a pretty big component because number one, it alters the potential capital structure that you're looking to set up. You have to be more equity than debt because servicing that debt would be very expensive. Exactly. That's absolutely right. And the other piece of it as well is that we tend not to want to constrain management too much. The the capital structure is bearing down on them and they've got to do X, Y, and Z or else the entire enterprise. We want them to focus on operating a good business. And if they're worried about the maturity wall is coming next year or we're not going to be able to make it. Let's just take some potentially impulsive short-term actions to make it. 
those are the types of things that are calibrated to make for a successful business. And so at least for us anyway, it's created opportunities because our firm historically has had a strong pedigree in both distress cycles, but also in terms of coming up with creative equity solutions. And so for us, at least it's been good over the past year to be able to work with businesses who Otherwise, we're really building solid businesses in a way they could. So anyway, it's been a great experience for me. I feel like I've gotten a PhD in capital structure and allocation over the last couple of years. And I wish I'd done this earlier. You were smart, innovating early on and learning all the ins and outs of running a business and finance. And I'm just catching up to you and others in the field. But it's been great. I've really enjoyed it. What do you think the fallout is going to be? Because I imagine there's all these companies that were bought with quite a lot of debt that debt has some variable rate that assume now getting marked to somewhere where normal debt rates are. You need new debt to come into the company. Is there going to be a crazy shakeout? Is it going to just be small? How do you think all these private equity owned businesses are going to be affected? We're trying to figure it out ourselves. My own view is that there are going to be effects on both the debt and equity sides. On the debt side, as you pointed out, we're starting to see this in commercial real estate where companies are saying, you know, we're not even going to service some of the debt because we don't see a pathway. The bank will own it or whatever. Exactly. So the lenders are going to have to take it over. And you're already seeing in San Francisco, which you know better than I do, that some of the commercial real estate is being marked down substantially. And even then, some of the marks aren't attracting new buyers. That seems to me the canary in the coal mine in terms of debt. But even in terms of equity, we've seen public valuations come down a little bit in some cases. But what I think about is some of the private marks for some of these companies where on the public side that have gone down, but you see the private marks still artificially high. I assume in tech or venture capital and stuff like that, I've seen it quite a bit where the marks are just significantly higher than they should be. Yeah. And so I wonder if there's going to be a shakeout there, especially once some of the sponsors end up coming up to the period when they would typically sell or otherwise exit and they'll have to mark it down or otherwise come up with some solution that is not the current valuation. I think there are going to be a lot of opportunities for the investors like us who've been value investors all along and who have creativity in terms of working within a debt or equity structure. We'll see where things go. But on the tech side, we're in a completely different environment, obviously, from 2021, one that we haven't seen arguably in 20 years, if not longer. Do you think from the private equity business that we're going to see way more than normal blowups of firms too? Not just the portfolio companies, but the firms themselves? It's a good question. I guess it really depends at the end of the day on the tolerance those firms LPs have for some of the dislocation or disruption to the assets that are being held. To the extent that you could do a continuation fund of some kind and persuade your LPs, look, this is a rocky period, but these are fundamentally good businesses. Maybe there's going to be some ability to continue along. But I think some of the firms that bought high and are going to be forced to sell low if they can sell at all. Those were very difficult places to be. One of the things I was talking to some of my colleagues about, there's a process that we were involved in where the asset ended up going for something like 30 times when a multiple in the sector was typically more 15 to 18. And I remember thinking whoever won, I can't remember who won that 30 times bid process. But if I were the investor in that case, I would be sweating every single day of the week because to hit that mark, every single assumption is going to have to play out next seven years. Yeah. So they probably had some core assumption that they could drive out costs faster than you could. Even then, in terms of exit, you're going to have to find someone to buy at or above that multiple. It would just be very, very hard. Not to say it wasn't a good business. It would be pretty hard, I think, to make that work. Anyway, I think for private equity going forward, people are going to have to be much more judicious. It's not just throwing darts at a dartboard like it might have been when money was essentially free. A couple of personal questions. You grew up in Kansas. How does that inform your view on the world? 
I think it makes me more optimistic in nature. Growing up there, I couldn't help but have a view that things were going to be better tomorrow than they were today. I also just like being around people. Every time I go back now, I'm just reminded that people are just fundamentally good at heart, those kinds of things. I think it does affect how I interact with other people or how I see the world going forward. The other piece of it as well, for me at least, was very important, was growing up in the 70s and 80s there in a small town in Kansas. For someone, my personality was very, very important. I was, it might seem hard to believe given my career trajectory, but I was a pretty shy, awkward, dorky kid for a long time. And this is before the era of social media and all the rest. And so it was kind of a nice test bed for me to figure out who I was without the scrutiny of a, being in a big city or being on social media platforms and all that stuff. And so it really helped give me time, I think, to find myself, which was important. I'd say those are some of the things that inform how I see the world. The other thing I guess I would say is just to remember that there's a much wider world out there than those who you are in physical proximity with. And as you know, in our shared milieu, it's not exactly representative of the entire United States or the entire world. To me, at least, it's a good reminder of the fact that there are many people out there from many different walks of life. I grew up with people whose parents had lost a job or whose loved ones had died prematurely, who had had all kinds of curveballs thrown at them in a way that really knocked them on their feet. And so I try to remember that Northern Virginia is certainly a very cosseted sliver of society. And I try to impress that upon my kids. And I'm sure you do too, that there are others out there who are less fortunate. How do you impress it on your kids? Because I imagine you're probably raising your kids in better circumstance than you had in terms of you have more wealth and more ability to take vacations and other types of things. So how do you impress that upon them? I think just in ways big and small, I try to tell them all the time about how our family grew up. Both of my parents came from Southern India, neither of them came from money. Some of the challenges that they faced, both in India and when they came to the United States, with literally $8 in a transistor radio and nothing else. Every time I think of my parents, I almost get emotional. To me, at least, the immigrant story in the United States just demonstrates that this is one of the great countries where two people who had nothing other than that small amount of money in a radio could succeed. And that's large for all kinds of communities across the United States. You just to make kids grateful for that. And even in micro ways, whenever we're biking around, for example, if we see a piece of trash, you just try to pick it up. Really small things. And I know it doesn't matter. It's not going to move the needle in terms of the environment writ large. But I want them to think about there's a world out there that's much bigger than just where you happen to inhabit. And you should always be mindful of that. Be a good citizen. Be a good human. And yeah, things will work out in the end. This is great. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? Many, many candidates for this. <laughs> One of them, I'm not sure if I totally believe it. I'll explain why until that makes sense. Love what you do. I think there's this conventional wisdom out there that if you don't love everything that you're doing, that you're working on, then you're just wasting time. You're doing it wrong. And I think that some of the lessons that are most valuable to us in our careers, indeed our lives, are learned when we're doing, we don't particularly enjoy something. Earlier in my career, which kindly viewed would be viewed as scut work, looking through hundreds of boxes to try to find the one document in a windowless room that could make a break an antitrust case. It wasn't enjoyable, but nonetheless, just that process of just forcing myself to do it. Like running hill sprints or something. I can't imagine anyone loves it. I mean, maybe there's a few crazy people out there who love it. If you do, please DM me on Twitter yeah. or something so I could not follow you because you're probably insane people. You have to do those types of things occasionally. Absolutely. Even as FCC chairman, I mean, yeah, you got the fancy title, the nice office, but there are many things I had to do that I didn't particularly love. But nonetheless, I viewed it as my job to do it. And just rolling up your sleeves, even if when you don't want to, has a lot of value. And so I think 
current mantra that if you're not loving everything you're doing, that you haven't really found your highest calling might sound appealing in the abstract, but I think ultimately doesn't serve people all that well necessarily. I keep running into these people and they've had six jobs in seven years or something. They keep moving from one thing to another, hoping to find that thing that is really going to move them. It's hard to grow and learn if you're constantly moving around or not giving something a chance all the time. 100%. I think of entrepreneurs like you too. In those early days, Safecraft or at other companies that have other people start, I'm sure they're unbelievable lists of tasks that your eyes glaze over like, oh gosh. It gets worse as the companies get bigger. <laughs> Ultimately, when you look back on it, ascending that hill was the journey, not the picture from the peak. Thank you, Ajipai, for joining us at World of Das. I follow you at Ajipai on Twitter. I definitely encourage our listeners to engage with you there. This has been great. Thanks so much again, Oren, and I would love to do it again sometime. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of Das is brought to you by SafeGraph. SafeGraph is geospatial data for physical places. Check it out at safegraph.com. And by Flex Capital. Flex Capital invests in data companies like those we talk about at World of Das. Check it out at flexcapital.com. <laughs>